Well, once again, good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you back to your seat as we begin this morning's Bible study. The ushers are even doing the lights in the sanctuary. Get you going. That means shh and sit down. <laughs> That's what that darkness means. We'll be in John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12, if you want to turn there. And um, I will commit our time to the Lord once again. Lord, we do pray, God, that you would help us to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us, and Lord, that you would reveal your word to us. We know that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and you're able to divide between joints and marrow and the thoughts and intents of the heart, Lord, and I pray that you would do that this morning in our lives. God, reveal yourself to us, cause us to uh, have our faith increased by the hearing of your word, and cause us, Lord, to uh, glorify you through living it out in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. John chapter 12, before we get started, I want to give you guys this reminder because repetition makes perfect. Baruch haba bashem Adonai. Ready? Baruch haba bashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's going to be part of the context of our text this morning in John chapter 12. And um, I'm going to uh, give you a little bit of background uh, um, before the passage here. We're going to talk about uh, some of the things that have taken place before uh, our passage. We'll, we'll begin our passage in John chapter 12 and verse 12, um, but we'll actually read a little bit before that just to get some more context. Um, so up to this time, uh, as you guys know, in the Gospel of John and all the Gospels, Jesus has called his disciples. He's been executing his uh, public ministry uh, in the world there, really in the land of Judea, um, of Israel, I should say, Judea and Galilee. And he's been doing uh, miracles and he's been teaching people and he's been really revealing himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. Although he might not say those things explicitly because one, he wants people to come to that conclusion on their own by faith and two, he doesn't want to stir up the masses and bring about um, the hour that is to come. The hour, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. So he's doing this ministry, he's doing miracles, he's teaching and he's preaching and um, he is showing people uh, what the kingdom of God is like, he's speaking in parables, um, he's traveling uh, to different places, and he is basically fulfilling all the prophecies. He is fulfilling all the prophecies that God had prophesied about the Messiah's first coming. And so, as we get closer to where we are in our text today, we see that Jesus does one of his last miracles, one of the, the most significant, significant ones besides his own resurrection, is raising Lazarus from the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead uh, at Lazarus' funeral, and uh, the people that were there who saw it and heard what had happened, they were amazed, they were astonished, as you would be, um, and uh, uh, when something like that takes place. And so um, this really stirred up a lot of, uh, of different things, really, in the people who were there. And some, it stirred up faith because they saw this sign as pointing to something greater 
than the sign itself, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. And so they, they, they went, it says, they went uh, along with him, they followed after him. And, but for some, for, for some others, it caused them to go and to retreat and to talk to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders did not believe, even in light of this miraculous sign. In fact, the religious leaders were so... Um, so uh, filled up in their hatred toward Jesus that this was like the last straw. We have to take this guy out. We have to kill him. And uh, they also plotted to kill Lazarus because you, you gotta, if, you can't, uh, if you can't deny the evidence, you have to get rid of it. And so uh, Lazarus is the evidence of God's power, and so we need to get rid of him. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, so at this time, uh, John, uh, Jesus and his disciples, um, because of the plot against Jesus, they retreat up to a village called Ephraim, which is north of Jerusalem a little ways, and they stay there in that village, and the next day, where it brings us to, to the John uh, chapter 12, um, we find Jesus going back to Bethany, which is just on the east side of Jerusalem, over the Mount of Olives, and um, he is there with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and he is having dinner with them. And I, you know, I can imagine what that would be like. You know, that They were having dinner in Jesus' honor but there's Lazarus who was dead uh, a couple of days ago and now he's alive. I can you know, imagine what the dinner conversation would be like. You know? <laughs> so how was your day? Oh, it was pretty good. Just hanging out in a tomb. And all of a sudden, I came back to life, and here I am, and people are going crazy about it. So he's relaxing, he's retreating, uh, Jesus is with his friends there in Bethany. And it tells us in the beginning of John chapter 12, verse 1, that, that was, it was a Sabbath day. It doesn't tell us that. We find that from other places, but it does tell us that it was six days before the Passover feast. And so our text begins on the next day, which would be Sunday, what we call now Palm Sunday. And so we pick up. Um, in John chapter 12, I'll begin reading at verse nine, right up to this point, with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus is there, Mary is sitting at his feet, she anoints him with the costly perfume, symbolizing her faith and, and knowing about his, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. Judas says, hey, what's up with that? That perfume was enough for a year's wages, we could have sold that perfume and given it to the poor, and she just dumped it out all over, uh, and uh, now it's gone. And the disciples kind of enter into that too. They're like, hey, yeah, what he said, what's up with that? And Jesus rebukes them, and he, he says, listen, what she did was good. The poor you will have with you always, but I am only with you for a short time. She understood that, and he said, whenever the gospel goes out anywhere in the world, um, she will be honored because of what she's done today. And so she is, even now as we speak about it. And so that brings us to verse nine, John chapter 12 and verse nine. It says, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Poor guy. So miserable. Hey, I'm back from the dead. Oh, they want to kill me. <laughs> Verse 11, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. They were going over to Jesus. Verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. 
They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And so that will be the portion of our text that we'll look at for this morning. And uh, as I was studying, I was thinking, you know, we're just going to go through this verse by verse. I don't really have any points for this morning's message. Um, But if I did have points, which I don't, uh, this is what they would be. (laughs) The first point... The first point that I don't have is God is prophetic. God is prophetic. And we'll take a look at that. We have um, at face value two prophecies being fulfilled here in this passage. The other point which I don't have is man is pathetic. (laughs) God is prophetic and man is pathetic because we see that every single person in this story has the wrong idea of what's taking place. They're not understanding God's purpose and what Jesus is doing here. And we'll unpack that a little bit. Okay, so we're going to just go through verse 12. Once again, it says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And so, as I mentioned before, the next day is the day after the Sabbath, before the Passover feast. It told us that it was six days to the Passover feast when Jesus was dining with his friends there in Bethany. And so this is the next day. And there was a great crowd that had come for the feast. Okay, so Jerusalem has its inhabitants already, the people that live there. But during the Passover feast, it was required, especially for the males to come from all over, the Jewish males to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast there in Jerusalem, in the holy city. And so you'd have all the people who, who uh, lived out in the countryside of Galilee, which, by the way, is where Jesus did most of his ministry. So they would have been well acquainted with Jesus, expecting him to be there and desiring to see him there. And all the Jews traveling into the area, the pilgrims, if you will, are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. That's the feast that was taking place there. And they heard that Jesus was on his way there too, and they expected him to be there. Now Jerusalem, uh, as you may know, means the city of peace. The city of peace. Now as we look back on Jerusalem's history, we can see that it hasn't really lived up to that standing, but I believe that, and it is, prophetic that one day Jerusalem will be the standard of peace for the world as God comes back to dwell with his people here with us, and we look forward to that. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And so we see the palm branches being used here and uh, really the palm branches were, um, uh, they symbolized victory uh, in, in ancient times and, and the, um, 
the people, uh, the inhabitants of a city, when their ruler or their king would return from victory in a battle, uh, in, in a war, they would meet and greet the, the ruler and the, and the procession coming in with palm branches and they would wave the, pro- the palm branches. It would be kind of like um, if we were welcoming home our military heroes uh, from war and we were standing along the streets and watching the procession come down and waving our American flags. That's kind of what they used the palm branches for. And it came to mean, uh, be a symbol of nationalism for the nation of Israel. And there was a few different things that the um, palm branches had been used for in history. Um, The Jews welcomed back Simon during the time of the Maccabees, uh, who had defeated the enemy and and drove him out uh, uh, there a little bit prior to Christ coming. Um, They welcomed him back to Jerusalem uh, with palm branches. And then also the Jews, in, during their rebellion uh, against the, Ro- uh, the Romans, they uh, had minted coins with the, with the palm uh, leaf on there. And it was symbolized, like I said, their nationalism and uh, the establishment of peace. And it's kind of ironic, it's funny actually, that when the, the nation of Israel was overthrown by the Romans in 70 AD, after that, uh, Titus had minted a coin with a palm branch on it and somebody in, in bondage sitting under the palm branch just to kind of have the last word for the Jews. So the Jews are out there, the people, the crowd, they're out there welcoming Jesus with these palm branches. And uh, the other gospels tell us that they were also laying down their cloaks on the road and that was just kind of a, the, the symbol of, you know, of um, you have the authority and um, we, we honor you for that. And so that's, that's what was going on with the palm bra- branches as they were waving them there. And, you know, we have, as we read in our call to worship, we have this Psalm uh, 118. And these are the verses that they shout to uh, Jesus are verses 25 and 26. And um, it's a messianic psalm. You know, it just means that the... Um, uh, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to fulfill certain prophecies in the scripture. And maybe some of them, they didn't even really know what prophes- that they were prophecies. In fact, the Bible tells us that the prophets were writing and uh, they're not even really knowing what they're writing about. They're just being carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God to write these things down. And so we find many scriptures that um, have that significant meaning of being a messianic uh, message, a messianic prophecy to us. And they use the word Hosanna. And Hosanna just means, it's like, it's like pleading for salvation. Save now. Please save. Save us. They're shouting this as Jesus comes into the city from Bethany over the Mount of Olives there. And it really became um, a term, like a title of acclamation, of adoration uh, for Jesus Um, And that's, you know, we have it included in many of our worship songs now. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Psalm 118 is one of the, what's called Hallel Psalms. Uh, It's the Psalm, uh, Psalms 113 through 118 are the Psalms that they would sing as they ascended up to Jerusalem, especially during the feasts, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles. And palm branches would also be used during that feast as well. And so once again, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed even is the King of Israel. And so Jesus here revealing himself as the King 
of Israel. Now we've heard that statement before back in John chapter one. Back in John chapter one, while Jesus is calling his disciples, um, Philip goes and finds Nathanael under the fig tree. And Philip says to Nathanael, come and meet this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Could he be the Christ? And Nathanael gets up and starts walking with them. And he's like, Nazareth, what kind of, what it, can any good come out of Nazareth? And he walks with them and he sees Jesus. And Jesus says, behold, a man in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael says, how do you know me? And he says, Nathanael, before Philip got you while you were still under the fig tree, I knew you. And it says in John chapter one and verse 49, Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now all through Jesus' ministry, um, he implored people, he commanded people not to tell others that he was the Messiah. Do not share with others that I am the Christ. And it seems strange that he would do that if he came um, uh, to proclaim his Messiahship and to lead people in faith uh, to the Messiah, to the Christ. Um, why would he want to keep it hushed down? Well, one, like I mentioned before, he wants people to come to that conclusion on their own. But two, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. There was an appointed time uh, from God that Jesus would be revealed as the Messiah. And Jesus knew that that was the time that it was okay to be appointed or to be declared as the Messiah publicly. And uh, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more later. It's very, very interesting, very wonderful. And so this time, he receives the, the adoration and the homage from, from the people. He doesn't tell them not to speak. He is publicly letting the people proclaim that he is the Messiah um, at this point. This is the first time he actually does that publicly. Verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And this is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. It's a messianic prophecy, and we see Jesus here fulfilling this prophecy once again. Prophecy is so wonderful. This uh, this, this prophecy was written 500 years before the coming of Christ. So 500 years before God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, inspiring Zechariah to pin these things down, to be able to say, I can tell the future, and when you uh, see that it is fulfilled, you'll know that it was I who spoke it. That's God's heart and prophecy, part of his heart and prophecy. And so Jesus finds this donkey. Well, the other gospels tell us how he, got, he acquired the donkey. He told his disciples that, that they should go into the town and they would find a young donkey tied up there and uh, that they should bring it back. And if anybody asks, hey, what are you doing with this donkey? Say to them, the, the master needs it and it'll be right back and they'll let you go. And so that's exactly what they did. They brought it to Jesus and Jesus wrote on it. it was, Matthew tells us that there, it was, a, it was a, a young colt and its mother and uh, Jesus came in on the colt um, the donkey uh, was another sign of peace. It resembled peace. And, and some people think of it as kind of like a lowly animal. Um, but in the ancient times, um, it, was, it was thought of as a noble animal. In fact, you can find in Judges and in Second Samuel, um, princes and rulers riding in uh, on donkeys in, into the city. 
and in a festal procession as well. And so it was a noble animal, but it was a sign of peace. Jesus didn't come in on a war horse, which would have been a sign of war. Jesus came in on a donkey, the symbol of peace, which really is a big part of the misunderstanding that the people who were greeting him uh, had as he was coming in. He didn't come in to make war. He came in to make peace. The people wanted him to, to make war, to free them from the Roman oppression uh, that, was, that had been uh, dominating over them for quite some time. Leon Morris, commentator, says this, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to symbolize a conception of messiahship very different from that of the crowds. They hailed him as the messianic king. He came as the prince of peace. They vastly misunderstood Jesus' purpose in coming, and many people continue to misunderstand his purpose. But in this instance, you know, the triumphal, the triumphal entry would represent um, a king or a ruler returning, as we mentioned before, from conquest. They would come in on their war horse, or even, you know, if they came in, even if they came in on a donkey during that time, it would be because they had triumphed over their enemies. Well, Jesus hasn't done that yet. And so it's kind of interesting that the people are already praising him and hailing him before he actually does what they think he's going to do, which he doesn't. He does something much greater. But they are, they are, um, they are projecting upon him this um, false reality of peace. And it would be kind of like, it would be kind of like um, rewarding somebody with the Nobel Peace Prize before they merited it. Not that that's ever happened before. <laughs> but they, they, were in, they were in for a, a big surprise because Jesus hadn't come to fulfill their desires. He's, he came to fulfill the heart and work of God. F.F. F. Bruce says, Jesus offered Jerusalem the policy of quiet and patient submission as the right one to follow. But the city did not recognize the things that made for peace with disastrous consequences. Speaking of the ultimate uh, crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ. A uh, quick word about prophecy here. Um, I'm so thankful that we have the more sure word, the more sure word of God. I'm so thankful that we have a book filled with hope and with promises, and not only that, with truth and evidence as to the authority of God. And um, much of that evidence is contained in prophecy. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 says, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We have this more sure word of prophecy. And so we have... At least two prophetic uh, passages being fulfilled here in this, in this passage that we're looking at in John chapter 12. But there's a third one which I really am excited about and I want to share with you guys as well. If you guys remember the prophet Daniel in chapter 9 and verse 24, he's, uh, he's given... Um, starting earlier than that, but we're going to look at verse 24. He's given um, a decree 
uh, by God through an angel and it is a word of prophecy. It's interesting that Carlin was teaching uh, from Daniel on Wednesday night. He did a great job bringing the message of God's word and um, this just kind of follows up on that in terms of a key word that's in here. We're gonna look at it now. Daniel chapter nine and verse 24 through 27. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And so we have this wonderful prophecy that uh, Daniel has given us and it's really a key to when the Messiah will come. Uh, the first coming. Nobody knows the time or the hour of the second coming. Um, but he gives us this decree and there's some words in here that are used throughout Daniel and just like Carlin mentioned in the account of Nebuchadnezzar um, on Wednesday night that Nebuchadnezzar went out for seven times to um, be really become an animal until he humbled himself and proclaimed that God was his God. And we see that number throughout scripture really, but in Daniel, it comes to mean um, at least the sevens, seven uh, sevens um, comes to mean a unit of seven. And so 70 sevens would be seven units of seven or 49. I'll bring it up here. All you, 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 uh, you math haters don't zone out on me, okay? <laughs> Stay focused in here, all right? Uh, seven sevens, that's 49 years, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the fulfillment. 62 sevens, that's 434 years, until Messiah comes but is cut off. And then sometime later, one seven, seven years. It begins at an unknown time in the future and that is known as the great tribulation, that seven year period. And so there's three parts to this, but we'll look at the first two sets. The first two sets of sevens is 69 sevens, or 483 years. So you have the seven sevens, which Daniel said, when the decree is given that, that, that Israel or Jerusalem can be rebuilt, from that time, start counting. And you start counting, and when you get to 49 years, that's when Jerusalem will be completed in its rebuilding phase. And then from that point forward, count another 62 sevens or uh, 434 years and, um, and at that time the Messiah will come. So he gave a really specific uh, detailed account. There's no doubt of when the Messiah would come. If the Messiah doesn't come at the end of 483 years then Daniel is a false prophet. But at the end of 483 years the Messiah does come who might that Messiah be? Well, we believe that it's Jesus. So it's interesting that uh, scholars say, well, that happens to be the exact year. Now they have to reconcile a bunch of things because there's a different calendar system that's used and so they've done all the math and they say, yep, it's the exact year based on the dates that they have. Daniel would always 
Um, and the prophets would always say which year they began their prophecy or in the year of the reign of so-and-so, I began prophesying or something like that. And that gives us indicators as to when things have taken place. Plus also from history and archaeology, we can pin those things down as well. So what's interesting is scholars not only have determined that it's the exact year that Jesus came, but some of them even have calculated it and said that it's the exact day. 483 years, 173,880 days. And they say fulfilled on Palm Sunday as Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. The exact day from, that, from, that time, from the time that the things were decreed until the Messiah would come. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> That's so wonderful. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. It's, it's the more sure word of God. The Lord has done this for us. I'm going to talk about prophecy for just a second. Prophecy in my testimony of the power of prophecy and also of, of the resurrection. You know, prophecy is one of those things where, where, you know, God said even in Deuteronomy, he said, you want to know how a prophet is speaking from my heart is speaking according to, to God, this is how you do it. If he tells you something and it doesn't happen, he's a false prophet, kill him. If he tells you something and it does happen, then you'll know that I have spoken through him. It's very simple, right? If he lies, kill him. If he tells the truth, it means that God, that I have spoken. And in his word, he says things like, I am telling you these things here. I'm giving you all these visions, all these prophecies. And by the way, one of the reasons I'm telling you this, it's very simple, so that when it happens, you will know that I was the one that told you. It's very simple. It makes it so simple to trust in God because he has given us prophecy and promise after prophecy and promise and they have all come true. They have all been fulfilled and we can look to the future prophecies and the future promises and trust that they too will, will be fulfilled because God is faithful. He is faithful to his word and we have the more sure word of God and the resurrection for just a moment. The resurrection, I'm mentioning these two things because it's part of my testimony in terms of coming to faith and believing uh, you know, assenting intellectually that, that the word of God is true. Prophecy and the resurrection were the two main things for me. Of course, my life was upside down before I came to Christ when I was 23 years old. He turned it right side up. Forgave me of my sins. Healed me. Intellectually, though, I was struggling. It took me a while to come to faith and I began reading the scripture and I found the two most prominent things for me that were convincing, you know, more than just my experience. Because anybody can have an experience. Our experience doesn't validate God's word. God's word will validate our experience, but God's word validates God's word, his prophetic word. And so... I had my experience with God, but I still wanted to make sure it was true. I began studying his word and looking at prophecy, looking at the resurrection, and those two things are so powerful. The resurrection, we have proof in the scripture, of course, that Jesus is raised from the dead. Not everybody will assent that, you, that the resurrection was true because it's circular reasoning if you're using the Bible to argue the resurre resurrection. So we can say, okay, well, even his enemies um, uh, they might not say that he rose from the dead, but they did things to make it seem like uh, he, to, to, 
to confirm that he rose from the dead by trying to sweep it under the rug. Remember the, remember the, um, the guards at the tomb when the angel appeared and they fell down as though they were dead men and they went back to the leaders and they told them what happened and, and the leaders told them, don't tell anybody that this happened. Don't tell them that this happened. They didn't deny that it happened. They just said, don't tell anybody. They tried to sweep it under the rug, make it look like it didn't happen. Extra biblical evidence of people who are not believers saying uh, these, these people worship somebody who they claim has risen from the dead. So even, even um, non-believers were looking in on the early church and confirming that from a very early date, um, believers, Christians believed in the resurrection, in the resurrection of Jesus and in the future resurrection of themselves. Um, the biggest thing for me, though, in Scripture um, concerning the resurrection is that the apostles uh, were willing to go to their death for their faith. And let me explain for a moment. You remember that after Jesus died, they thought all was lost. All was lost. They locked themselves in the upper room, hiding, fearing for their own lives. Their leader had just been destroyed. They too now felt like they were going to be arrested and destroyed so that this whole thing could be crushed. And they were fearing for their lives. Then something happens. And the next thing we know, they're out on the street corners proclaiming boldly the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They went from timid and fearful to bold and powerful. And they began proclaiming his word and they did it unto death. They, they died for the sake of the gospel. Now somebody might say, well, you know, people die for what they believe in all the time. Well, you know, a lot of the time, I should say. And it's true, people do die for what they believe in um, a lot of the time. Might not, make, might not make it true, but they believed it was true unto death. But here's the thing about the apostles. Some people may be willing to die for what they believe in, but nobody in their right mind is willing to die for what they know is a lie. Nobody's gonna die for what they know is a lie. The disciples did not believe that Jesus was gonna raise from the dead. That's why they were afraid and up in the upper room, locked in there. They didn't understand, even though Jesus had told them over and over again. They did not understand. Then all of a sudden, they're empowered with this boldness, with this power to go and preach this gospel message and they went to their death proclaiming it. If it wasn't true, they would have known it, and as soon as they were called on the carpet at threat of life, for them, they would have said, oh, never mind, I'm making this all up. This isn't true. We don't have a single apostle doing that. And we have countless testimony of disciples, even disciples who, who uh, saw the resurrected Christ. Paul tells us that there were um, over 500 and during the time that he wrote 1 Corinthians, he said most of whom are still alive, which meant there was at least 251 of them still alive that could say, yeah, I saw Jesus raised from the dead and report to that. So the power of prophecy and the power of the resurrection make God's promises and his word undeniable along with other things as well. Well, verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. That is, the disciples had done these things to him. They were, 
They were fulfilling prophecy, with, aiding in the fulfillment of prophecy without even knowing it. It's just really, you know, it's so funny that the disciples didn't know what was going on. They joined, they joined in the procession. They joined in the crowd and the celebration. You know, I can just imagine them like, yeah, what are we doing? You know? <laughs> What's going on here? They had no idea. It wasn't until uh, the Bible tells us after Jesus was glorified that they came to this understanding. Jesus being glorified uh, is spoken of his, of his crucifixion, it's spoken of his resurrection, and it's spoken of his ascension. And so these things happened, and then after that, the disciples, the apostles, they received the Holy Spirit. And then, because of the receiving of the Holy Spirit, they were reminded of the truths that had taken place during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and they were able to report that to us in the Gospels. For as Jesus said in John 14 and verse 26, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will, will remind you of everything I have said to you and of course have done as well. John 16, 13 through 15, Jesus said, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. And so here were the disciples fulfilling this prophecy or being aid, aiding in the fulfillment of this prophecy concerning Jesus and they didn't even know that they were doing it. Um, one commentator noted this, he said, words and actions are freely done from personal motives and an entire spontaneity when they are nevertheless fulfilling the divine purpose and working out the plan of God. It's true that God's sovereignty kind of floats, or however you want to put it, over, over the choices of humanity. You have God's sovereignty, you have human choices, and somehow, it's a mystery, but somehow uh, they work together, and they both coincide regarding God's plan. It's such a wonderful, a wonderful mystery. And many times we may uh, be accomplishing God's will without ever really know, knowing it. I would say especially when we're being obedient to what we do know. When we're spending time in God's word and we're, we're, we are responding to God's word in obedience, then we may look back and find out that we were working out according to God's plans in ways that we had no idea we were doing. That's what happened with the disciples, right? They didn't know what was going on, but Jesus said, hey, go into the town and, and procure that donkey and bring it back here so that we can use it for this. And they said, okay, and they did that, and they put him on it, and in doing so, they were helping to fulfill prophecy without even knowing it. That can happen with us. It can happen with us when we are obeying God, when we're serving others. You might hear things like, you have no idea how much that meant to me. You have no idea how much this blessing is being a blessing in other people's lives. And most of the time, we don't. How could we? We're finite in our understanding of those things. We don't, we don't see what's happening when we obey God and when we live and move and have our being according to his will. And um, hopefully, those are types of things that you hear from time to time. If you're hearing those things concerning the ministry of Jesus Christ, um, then... You, then it's a, an indication that you're on the right track. Verse 17. 
Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word, okay? So we have another crowd coming in. This place is getting busy. And they continued to spread the word. This is the crowd that was with him when he raised Jesus from the dead. They had seen and heard the miracle and now they, are, they themselves are um, repeating the words or the testimony of that miracle to others. They couldn't help but speak of what they had seen and what they had heard. It's interesting that um, John uses the, tells us again in here, they were there when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave. And I think that's important because the, the people were there at the funeral. Jesus comes and uh, he's already proclaimed himself as the resurrection and the life. He stands outside the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. Now I imagine right at that time, most people were looking at him and being like, who is this guy, you know? What a way to ruin a funeral. You know, can you imagine if you went up <laughs> during the quiet time of a funeral, you know, to the casket and you're like, Bob, come out. <laughs> Nothing happens, it would be so awkward. It'd be awful, you know. Oh man, never be invited to family Thanksgiving again. <laughs> so they're looking at Jesus and he says this. And for a moment, I have to believe that most of them were like, oh my gosh. You know. But then what happens? Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And then they're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and they can't believe what has taken place. And now they go and they share and speak these things to others, sharing this testimony of what had happened to Lazarus. And it's really funny, we read that the, disciples, or the Pharisees, I should say, um, wanted to kill Lazarus now as well, right? They started out with one man on their hit list, Jesus Christ. And then he, rose somebody, he, he raised somebody from the dead, so then they had to put him on the hit list to get rid of the evidence and so here's Lazarus raised from the dead, enjoying life again and, and being a testimony of God's power. They want to kill him. Um, it doesn't look like they succeed in doing that, but even if they had, it wouldn't have mattered. The damage was already done. People are sharing what had happened. There had been people there that had seen and heard what had happened, and they were sharing that with others. You can't really get rid of the evidence when people are, have been eyewitnesses they become part of the evidence. Are you going to get rid of all the people? Can't do that. And so it wouldn't have mattered if the Pharisees succeeded in killing Lazarus. Verse 18 says, many people because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign went out to meet him. Okay, now we have even more crowds. And in my reckoning, I count at least three main different crowds here. Okay, you have those who saw uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, from Bethany. They were in Bethany. You have the pilgrim, pilgrims coming for the feast from Galilee and the country and, and the regions beyond. Um, they're there welcoming Jesus. Now you have the inhabitants of Jerusalem coming out to greet Jesus as well because of the testimony that Lazarus had been raised from the dead by Jesus. So you have all these crowds there. And I was thinking, if three's a crowd, how many is three crowds? Huh? All you math haters are like, oh no, here we go. First the prophecy and now this, you know. 
And then there, there's some of you who hate crowds, you know, you introverts sitting over there by the door. <laughs> Just got to get out from this crowd immediately. You're rolling your eyes and getting anxious. And the people who hate, you know, who, who hate crowds in general are just getting angry and then, and then all you introverted math people haters are getting ready to kill me. That's just the way it is. <laughs> all you other friendly people, you can stay. <laughs> the Pharisees, the Pharisees would have called this a mob. They're standing there and they're watching the crowd come from Bethany, the crowd come from Galilee, the crowd go out from Jerusalem to meet Jesus, to see him. And they're like, oy vey, you know, this is, get, this is beyond our, what are we going to do here? This is, this is a great crowd. They would have called it a mob. And I was thinking, and I was thinking it was probably like the, the 1997 Garth Brooks conference or concert in Central Park. I don't know if you guys saw that on TV, but, you know, that's appropriate because the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of having friends in low places. And so... <laughs> I grew up listening to Garth Brooks. I had to slip him in there. But now that I've grown up, I listen to Jesus Christ. So, <laughs> The one who made Garth Brooks. So it's interesting, this progression of witness that's taken place. You know, First you have those who saw Lazarus raised from the dead. They saw and heard. Then they go and share uh, with others. And those who are hearing their testimony now want to come and see this great man, Jesus Christ. Christ. And so, you know, this is, this is all happening because of the life that has been changed by one man, this man who has been made alive. And that's, that's the power of God through a changed life. And he can do that through anybody's life when they allow him to change them. He can, he can demonstrate his power in the testimony of his love and his grace of a changed life through one person and it can have a ripple effect into many in the community. And I pray that if you've been changed by Jesus Christ, that your life would bring about that type of buzz as well as you seek to fulfill the great commission of Christ. It's interesting that John refers to his miracles, uh, not just as miracles, Jesus' miracles, as miracles, but as signs. And all of the all of the gospel writers understood this, but John explicitly says it. Listen, this is, this is a miraculous sign. It's not just a miracle. It's not like just a big to-do or, you know, abracadabra and look what God can do. That's not it. All of his miracles, all of Jesus' miracles pointed to something greater. They pointed to something beyond the miracle itself. Leon Morris again writes, in the signs... He exposes facet after facet of human need, showing at the same time human inadequacy and Jesus' all-sufficiency. Each miracle is significant, meaningful. Rightly considered, it points people to God and to God's provision in Jesus. If people will only view the miracles as they should, they will be led into deeper faith. From this point of view, the semia, or the signs, represent a challenge, a call to faith. And so that's exactly what's, what's happening. Jesus and all of his miracles, remember the feeding of the 5,000, speaking to the inadequacy of, of, of human resources to provide for the hungry, the greed of humanity that, that, that has storehouses of food but neglects to help others, the, the desperation of those, who have, those countries that have gotten themselves into a place because they won't 
um, repents and obey God into a place where they have no natural resources because they're not using them the way that God has intended. He feeds the multitude and reveals himself as the bread of life, not just catering to the social needs. We don't have a social gospel. The gospel is no good to anybody if it's watered down and, said it'll make, and says it'll make your life better. That's not a gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for the salvation of men's souls through the blood of Christ shed on Calvary for us. Don't listen to anybody else who tries to tell you otherwise. That's what the gospel message is. And Jesus being, being the fulfillment of all these things, all these signs that he was able to do through the power of God and showing the world, listen, I'm really what you need. And these signs point to me, the all-sufficient one. Verse 19 as we wrap up here. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They use this word see, and it, and it almost, you know, it's not, they're not demanding that you look, you know, turn your head and look. The word, the word for see in the Greek is really like, like, behold, an unexpected thing, you know. This is taking place. We never would have thought that this was going to happen. Otherwise, we should, or we would have, or we should have acted sooner. This is getting us nowhere. Really, what they're saying is this is getting you nowhere. They're blaming each other. They're looking at each other and saying, what is it? where is this getting you? you know, like, where is this getting you? I thought we had a plan. What's going on? The whole world is going after Jesus. They were blaming each other for this. In John chapter 11, verses 45 through 48, it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? This is before the passage that we're in. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So what are we gonna do about it? So they continued their plot to kill him. And in John chapter 11, verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. I see something funny and ironic here. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are telling, telling everybody, listen, if you see Jesus, let us know because we need to, to deal with this guy. Here comes Jesus riding on this donkey over the Mount of Olives. All the crowds are going to him. He's sitting there on the street coming into Jerusalem, not in a hidden way, not at night, scaling over the walls. That's not how he's coming. If you see Jesus, let us know. You can just imagine somebody there in the crowd being like, hey, Pharisee, um, not sure if you notice this or not, but there he is. Where's my reward, you know? Jesus makes himself available. He's not afraid of men. He knows what's in man's heart. He's not afraid of men. He makes himself available. He had great courage because of his confidence in the will of the Father. He knew exactly what God was leading him to do and the exact hour for which it was appointed. William Barclay said something interesting. He said, this entrance was an act of the most superlative courage for it was the defiance of all that his enemies could do and it was an act of the most superlative love for it was love's last appeal before the end. 
We see in Jesus coming into Jerusalem in this way an act of courage. He's not afraid. He's not going to come in hidden. The only reason he hid himself before was because the time had not yet come. Uh, there was times that even when he was in public, he was hidden, you know? Like uh, it was mentioned last week uh, by Pastor Dave Shirley when they tried to throw uh, Jesus off of the precipice and he just kind of disappeared and got out. And, you know, it's like, a, it's like on the cartoons when you see everybody mob on top of the pile and the, per- and the person they're trying to mob crawls out and everybody's still fighting. That's what Jesus did, things like that. He wasn't trying to hide. He had confidence. He had courage. But he also had love. And when I think about this passage, I think to where uh, Judas came to betray Jesus in the garden. It was the same thing. Jesus wasn't hiding out. Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane where he was used to going with his disciples to pray. And here comes Judas leading a band of soldiers from the temple guard. And they come and they've got torches and weapons and they, came, they come up and Jesus is standing there and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And one gospel record, records that they all double, double over backwards. And then they get back up, they dust themselves off and he says again, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they arrest him. But during that time, G- Judas comes up and gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek. And Jesus says, friend, you betray me with a kiss. An act of love. What was he saying to Judas? He was saying, <clears throat> it's not too late. It's not too late. And that's what he was saying to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The nation of Israel as he rode into Jerusalem, when they looked at him with indignation, he said, here I am. It's not too late. As we wrap up, uh, commentator Alfred Plummer said, after this confession of helplessness from the Pharisees, the Pharisees appear no more alone. The reckless hierarchy helped them on to the catastrophe. In other words, the Pharisees needed bigger guns to handle this. They needed the, the help of the Sanhedrin, the high court there, and the high priest. But the Pharisees said something very interesting. They said, the whole world has gone after him. Wearsby calls this an exaggeration and a prophecy. Now, they don't know that they're prophesying. They're exaggerating because of their loss for what's taking place. But what they were saying is, man, there's just no stopping this guy. They almost got it right. What they should have been saying is there's no stopping this God. And if you can't beat him to join, you should join him. And that was the only logical thing for them to do. But they rejected him. They rejected the Messiah. He was cut off and he received nothing. Javern and McGee refers to this, um, this passage not as the triumphal entry, but as the tearful entry. Because Jesus was lamenting over Jerusalem. It says in Luke 19, 41, 44, in the parallel passage, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus wants to be your Prince of Peace. He's made that possible through bringing peace to us with God, absorbing God's wrath on the cross like a sponge that we would be exempt, that we would be set free from that penalty. He's here. He's made his triumphal entry into humanity. He's made his joyful entry into the world, his tearful entry. And uh, he's asking us, do you recognize the day of your visitation. Do you recognize it? And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, God. We thank you that you have given us this more sure word handed down to us by the prophets. Thank you, Lord, for the faithful men and women who have sacrificed their lives to preserve your word for future generations. God, we honor them. We thank you, God, that, that you have used them to bring this word to us. And now we get to benefit from it, Lord. And Lord, you did not leave us as orphans, just as you promised, Jesus. You sent your Holy Spirit to teach us what your word has to say. The things of the Spirit cannot be understood by the natural man, for they are spiritually discerned. Thank you, God, for giving us that interpreter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in our hearts through the power of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead living inside of us, able to deliver us from the power of sin, from the power of death. Oh Lord, help us to live this life sold out to you, God, in the power of your spirit under the wonderful reality of your grace, God. You've made it possible for us You've been faithful. Help us, Lord, to respond in faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand as we close with our last song. Now, today it can be said that the Pharisees were right. The whole world has gone after Jesus. Our calendars are reckoned based off of his birth before Christ in the year of our Lord. Our necks are adorned with the emblem of his death. His songs are played in department stores at Christmas. His name is written into the script of most every movie, unfortunately. <laughs> Believers go after him desperately. Atheists go after him maliciously. And many go after him only nominally, just by name. But one thing is, is for sure, whether or not the world goes after him, he has gone after the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life.
I pray that you believe that. And if you don't, you can right now. You can put your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the prophesied one, the Messiah, the anointed one who was cut off, but who will return in victory and will judge the hearts of men. He'll look for faith. He wonders if he'll find it. He'll bring us to himself. We'll get to be with him, the Lord of hosts forevermore. And those who have rejected him, he has no choice but to reject them. We're put in a place of torment, a place the Bible says is everlasting destruction. And where the where the the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies. Don't want anybody to go there. I've been close enough to that place before in the early years of my life, but I know I didn't experience anything like what it will be. Thankfully, the first 23 years of my life were the closest to hell I will ever be. I'm a heaven bound, and I pray that each of you in here are as well. If you're not, surrender your life to Christ. Lord, we thank you once again for your word, and we pray that you would seal it up in our hearts, the things that were spoken, that you would help us to be your witnesses. Lord, that we'd go forth in joy and in gladness, proclaiming the great things that we have seen and heard, that we would testify of your grace, that we would go out and tell others, come see this man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? We know that you are, Lord, and we proclaim it. And we say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Thank you, Lord. Commit ourselves to you and pray that you'd be with us as we go our way. Cause us to rejoice in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you need prayer, there's always prayer at the cross for you. If you want to receive Christ, come up to the front, go to the cross, talk to somebody, but do it today. God bless you. We'll see you on Friday.